Well, good morning. I'll echo the welcome uh, from Alan. My name is Andrew. I'm the campus pastor here. And again, thank you for braving the cold. Um, We've been in the book of Psalms the last few weeks, which is uh, a book of songs. It's a song book, an ancient uh, hymn book, basically, that God's people have used to worship him for thousands of years. And basically, we've been looking at the themes of Advent around the candles we light this time of year and finding psalms that really uh, embodying, you know, kind of summarize that theme for us. So we started with hope, peace, love, and now today we're talking about joy, uh, which is funny because joy is the hardest for me, <laughs> if you know me at all. Uh, last Christmas, a student who attends here and who shall remain nameless uh, gave me a, a Christmas present. It was a t-shirt with this on the front. This is what was on the front. So that's Grumpy Cat, if you don't know who that is. And the shirt says, ho, ho, no, on it. And uh, she also gave me a journal uh, full of Grumpy Cat sayings. Uh, And I can't obviously say them all now. So I I picked one that was my favorite. It's, if you're happy and you know it, get away from me. (laughs) But I was, you know, I was kind of like, thanks, thanks a lot. I I know, I get it. Joy is not a uh, strong suit of mine. And uh, listen, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be funny and, and loosen us all up a little bit. But if, if you were to honestly ask, this isn't something I'm always that proud of about myself, uh, my pessimism. Uh, because Christians should be known for our joy. Uh, we are a people with tremendous joy. It's a command that we have to rejoice in God. And we, we should be the kind of people when people see us, they may say a lot of other things about Christians. But I, my, my hope would be that they would say joy. In fact, one of our most famous songs this time of year is Joy to the World, right? But in another sense, joy is, is really only getting harder. And there's this article we found that's been uh, really jarring for me. Uh, over a 10-year study, uh, we are finding that depression and anxiety are up 37% in teenagers in the United States. Just over, over 10 years, 20, 2004 to 2004. 14. And that's not just a statistic in my, in my mind. I know there are students, students maybe even in the room, you guys maybe are struggling with this. And I, and I want you to know if that is you, that we love you, your church loves you, we want to be with you in that. So please share that with us if, if that's where you are. But if we're being honest, that's not just a, a young adult problem. It's not just a teenage problem, is it? I think joy is harder for everybody. So if the words joy to the world ring hollow to you this Christmas season, I I get it. And in some ways, Christmas, right, only makes this search for joy even worse, right? Because if you're already kind of naturally down or there's something happening in your life that's making you depressed, not only are you depressed, but you feel guilty about it this time of year because this is supposed to be the happiest season of all. And suddenly you're exhausted just trying to pretend to be excited and it's, and it's terrible. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you absolutely love every Christmas, the presents and the lights and the family and the friends, but even you have to admit, right, that January is coming. <laughs> when it's just cold and spring is an eternity away. And I say that lightheartedly, but even you, even you know that the joy of Christmas, it does not last. It doesn't for any of us. I know, I get it, right? Here's how bad I am. I can't even start a sermon on joy without making everyone feel bad. This is the way 
It's just the way, I swear this is going to get better. I, I promise it'll get better. Uh, but I think you'll agree, joy is more complex and more nuanced than we often think it is. Joy for the Christian, it's a promise, it's a priority in our lives, and yet it is not an easy thing. It's not. That's why I love the Psalms, and I love that we've been in them, because they are so honest about life. And here in Psalm 126, if you were, if you were listening carefully, you kind of begin to see that the Psalm is teaching us that lament and joy are often inseparable in our lives. Tears and laughter, they almost need each other. In fact, as we look at Psalm 126, the message is clear in the psalm, but it, it feels contradictory. And, and yet, if, there, if there's one thing that you walk away with this morning, I, I want it to be this, this image that comes straight out of the psalm. Here it is. Joy, our joy grows best in a field of tears. Our joy grows best in a field of tears. This may not be the good news you wanted <laughs> this morning, but if you're hurting or disappointed or anxious or lonely or depressed, this is good news what we've just said. Because it means the Bible does not sugarcoat your heartache and God does not promise a, a tear-free life. He doesn't. But he does promise that every one of our tears, however many of them there are, that he will turn them into laughter. That is the promise. So how does he do that? How, how does he turn sorrow to joy? Well, the psalm gives us three clues that I, that I really want to spend the rest of our time talking about this morning. And each section of the psalm really gives us a clue, how to cultivate a life of joy, even in the midst of heartache and brokenness in our world. So if you haven't turned there yet, turn to Psalm 126. The Psalms are basically in the middle of your Bible, turn to number 126. I'm actually going to read the whole thing again. It's not very long. Uh, read along with me, if you would. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we're glad. So restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, like most of the Psalms, we don't actually know the circumstances surrounding the Psalm. Most scholars believe that the, this fortune that he's, re, he's retelling from the past was the exiles returning to the promised land from Babylon. If you were in our Daniel series, you know Daniel was an exile with God's people in Babylon. And this is reference to the return of God's people, maybe. Maybe that's it. We, don't, we really don't know. That's kind of the beauty, actually, of the Psalms is their timelessness. Uh, they're fit for any occasion for God's people throughout history. Either way, what's clear is that the, the writer is recalling some kind, some moment of great joy of God's deliverance in the past. And then he begins to plead with God again to do that. Do it again, just like that. And then he, be, he almost reminds himself and us of, of, of the role of tears and sorrow in cultivating a life of joy. And, and this is really our first clue. If you want to cultivate joy, one of the first things you see in this psalm is that you have to remember that joy starts in the past. It does not start in the present. Joy starts in the past, not the present. And this song doesn't begin with the circumstances of the psalm. It doesn't say, here's where I'm at. It doesn't start there. It doesn't even explain why is the psalmist in tears as he writes, which I'm convinced he was, since that's the image he uses 
later on. He, he, he writes about the past. He starts with a history lesson for joy's sake. It was like a dream, he says. Our mouths were full of laughter, our tongue was shouts of joy. Remember when our joy was so obvious and so abundant that even our hostile neighbor nations looked at us and said, God has been good to them. Now, it's possible that this writer was actually a witness of the exile, the return from exile. Maybe he actually returned from Babylon and is remembering something he himself witnessed. I think it's more likely that he's actually referencing something, the stories of his people. He wasn't there. This is, this is the joy of generations past that have been told to him. Now, this is important, I think, for us this morning, because if you are like me, your tendency when, when you lack joy in your life is not to look back, is to look at right now, on the problem right now, what I'm feeling right now. It's about me and it's about now. The psalmist does the exact opposite. The real joy for him not, does not begin with me, but with us. And it doesn't begin with now. It starts then. And I think this means, if you struggle with this like I do, it means we have an anemic, we have a weak view, definition of joy. We think it's about the present. We, we want it, what we want or don't want in the moment, the immediate, how I feel right now. And then our joy, our experience of contentment and trust in God ebbs and flows with our blood sugar throughout the day. It's not rooted in anything. And it's not that the present is unimportant. I'm not saying that. But, but real joy is rooted in something so much deeper than now. Joy, biblically, is an identity passed on to you, forged in God's people for thousands of years. And it's an inheritance to you who believe. That's what joy is. Our identity is with the people of God, which is a, runs a lot deeper than the last five minutes it runs a lot longer than even my 80 years on this planet. It means that our God parts waters and provides bread from heaven. He gives us the law so we know how to live. He shows up in our world. That's the Christmas story. He knows our pain. He walks on water. He calms the storm. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He himself died for your heartache and sin and walked to the grave and then walked out of the grave victorious. These are not just stories. And they're not just their stories. If you trust in Christ, they are our stories. And they can be your joy if you let them. We also have, right, our own personal stories of God's showing up in our lives. I, I was just uh, talking with someone who attends here at the Leewood campus, and he was telling me the story of how he first came to know and trust and love God. And he, he was a young man. He was struggling severely with depression. Several times that attempted to take his own life. And then one day, uh, he, after an episode where he, he was convinced, this is it for me, I'm done. I've finally done it this time. He said, I woke up in a psych ward in a hospital and I had survived. And he said, in that moment, I knew through and through that it was God who saved me. And even in that moment, when he was telling me this story, I could see something in him welling up. You know what it was? It was joy. It was joy of what God has done in his life. 
And if you're a Christian, you have stories like that in your past. You have stories of his saving, of his restoring, of his answering prayer. We have these stories to tell ourselves even through tears sometimes or through the tears of someone else who needs them. I'm not saying this solves everything, okay, this storytelling. It doesn't. I I know that. It, It doesn't solve everything. But what it can do is it can get us outside of our present long enough to remember that the God we worship and the story we enter when we trust him is so much bigger than right now. It is so much deeper than my emotions and so much more powerful than what I feel. And that is the soil in which enduring, persevering, real joy can grow. That's it. And the alternative to what I've described, the alternative to this that many of us run to, and you see it everywhere in our society today, it's it's just a self-medication to deal with life. I'm not talking about uh, legitimate therapy that you need or medication, prescriptions that you may need. I'm talking about self-medicating. We self-medicate. So are we remembering or self-medicating? Right? There are so many ways in this world we can distract ourselves and numb ourselves to reality. Probably more than ever before. Sexual pleasure, pornography, alcohol, food, shopping, gossip, Facebook, vacations, busyness, video games, sports, grades, work, family, friends, TV, even just reaching for your smartphone, right? is a, a way to distract yourself from what's happening. And not all of these are bad things that I've said. Some of them are, but not all of them. But, but each of them, if you rely on it for your joy, it will fail you. And it might even destroy you. Instead, we should be remembering, right? This is why things like personal Bible study and reflection and prayer and silence are good things for you. They help you to remember. It's why community and gathering together and worshiping together is a good thing for you. Because when you're really, really down, you don't even know what to tell yourself. You need other people to tell you who God is and what he's done. We have a new community group session starting up in January. I'm not saying a community group is going to make you happy. It might even invite more problems into your life, actually. (laughs) Because that's what relationships do. That's how you bear one another's burdens. If you're looking for that kind of support, this is a way to do that. Let us help you. Let us know that you're looking for this. Cultivate that soil now. Joy, it, it starts in remembering and celebrating what God has done, our shared past, our shared identity as God's people. But it, it doesn't stay there. And we actually get our second clue uh, for joy in, in the request of the psalm, which is in verse four. Listen to it. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Restore our flourishing, our good. Make the world right again, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Here's how I would summarize the clue that you find there. Here it is. Joy is a mysterious gift. It is not a pursuit. It's a mysterious gift. We ask for it. We don't achieve it. You can't buy it. You can't happen upon it. You can't work really hard to get it. You have to ask, to ask for it. The Negev is, a, is the southern uh, region of Judah. The image he's referencing here, it's a desert. Right? There's no water, there's no life, there's no flourishing in the desert. If you've ever been to a desert 
or camped in a desert. You know, maybe it has a, its own strange kind of beauty to certain strange people out there. <laughs> but um, here's, the, here's the proof. If you've ever driven on Interstate 40 through Arizona in the summer, you know there are water stations along the interstate to cool down your car because even your car cannot flourish in the desert. Right? This is the image that the psalmist uses to describe his life and the life of God's people in this moment. Dry, scorched, dead. His soul is like the desert after months of baking at 120 degrees. It says, God, bring your streams, bring your rushing waters over our lives. I, I used to run cross country in California and I'll never forget the dry, dusty taste in my mouth after a race. All the way down your throat. You, I can almost taste it right now. And when you finished a race, all you wanted was a drink of water. That's all you wanted. And when you, when you got that first drink, it was like a resurrection. <laughs> Suddenly your brain and your heart and your organs are starting to work again and you're not on the brink of death anymore, right? That, that's, that's what the psalmist wants. He wants that to be revived like that. And in the, in the Negev, when it, when it did rain, it was a flash flood. The, the soil was too dry to absorb the water quickly. So dry beds were filled with water, roaring, rushing, raging water. And suddenly, there was life like that in the desert. That's what the psalmist is asking for. He said, God, give, me, give us that. And the psalmist knows this is something you have to ask for, okay? It, it, joy is like rain in the desert. You cannot just make it happen. No amount of will or planning or forecasting or prepping can fill the Negev with water. It's a gift, not a pursuit. So do we ask for joy or do we chase it? Here's what I mean by that. This is a trap we fall into, all of us, I think, throughout the course of our lives. If, if we were in this moment right now, 100% honest with ourselves. And I asked you, what is really your number one goal in life? Now, don't just tell me what you think I want to hear. Think about what, what are your actions, your decisions, your thoughts? What do they tend to swirl around? And I think if we were honest with ourselves, we'd say most of the time, it's my own personal happiness. That's what I'm trying to get. My own comfort, security, and happiness. And so much of our lives and our energy and our time is spent chasing after happiness. It's even in our founding document, right? <laughs> Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. This is terrible advice. Ask any philosopher, any psychologist, how best to avoid joy and happiness in your life, and they will tell you, chase after it. Make it everything. Make it the number one thing in your life. Even Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which was a reflection. It was a memoir on his time in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. Even he said, even in the concentration camp, happiness is not an end in itself. It's always a byproduct of something else. And I'll prove it to you. John Ortberg is a pastor in California, and he gives this thought experiment when, when we think about this. He says, imagine there was this special machine that if I plugged your brain into it, it would stimulate your, your pleasure center forever. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All the happiness chemicals coursing through your body all the time. But the cost is it would put you in a coma forever. 
you would never, you'd have amazing dreams, incredibly happy, pleasure all the time, but you would never accomplish anything or go anywhere or know anyone. Knowing all of that, if I offer this opportunity to you, what would you say? You would say, no, I don't want that. In fact, you might even look at it and say, is that even moral? Is that even ethical? Is that's not a good way to live? Because we all know deep down that there's something more important than our own happiness. We know it. We know there's something bigger that our lives are supposed to be about. And yet we spend so much of our lives looking for that special machine that even if we had it, we would hate it. And the psalmist, he doesn't look for joy as his salvation. He doesn't. He looks to God who gives salvation for his joy. See the difference? He knows that joy is on the other side of God and truth and perhaps even sorrow, perhaps even the desert itself. It's a mysterious gift from God and we can ask for it and we will probably have to wait for it. But if we try to live for it, we will never have it. And even if you believe what we've been saying so far, it it might not be making you feel any better. I, I get it. Maybe you feel like you've been asking your whole life for joy. Your whole life. For happiness, for health, for work, right? Not even a job that I li- you like. Just, a, just give me a job, God. For marriage, for someone to share your life with, for a broken marriage, for broken relationships. I, I know you've asked and you've asked and you've asked and there's no answer. There's no joy. So what do we do with that? Well, that's why we need this third clue, this last clue. I'm so thankful that it's here. Here it is. Joy is a promise, even when it feels impossible. Joy is a promise. Verse five, this is what he's reminding himself. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Any farmers out there raised on a farm? Some of you? I was not raised on a farm, but I can only imagine there's just something, just thinking about, there's something so miraculous about putting a seed in the ground which is your lifeblood. This seed is your only hope. And waiting for a harvest next year that in so many ways is completely beyond your control. It's kind of like sowing in tears, isn't it? Tremendous sacrifice involved. But when the harvest comes in and when it's beyond your wildest dreams or expectations, there is a joy I imagine unlike any other. Joy grows best in a field like that a field of tears. The psalmist is saying, life with God is kind of like that. If you plant with tears, when the harvest finally comes in, you won't be able to stop celebrating. The one who goes out weeping, casting out seed, will return with shouts of joy, weighed down by an abundance beyond imagination. It actually reminds me of the movie uh, Inside Out. Did you guys see that movie, Inside Out? Uh, it's all about the emotions of a young adolescent girl and her, her emotions are, are personified uh, by these characters and, and really the two main ones are joy and sadness. And joy wants everything to be great and fun and happy and easy and sadness is just sad. 
But she's also, you learn throughout the movie, she's also very deep, very compassionate, has her own beauty in a sense. And, and the whole plot of the movie is, is that joy and sadness have to work together. Neither of them can flourish alone, but together they bring a meaning and a joy that is far richer than joy could have ever had on her own. This is what we have in the psalm. But it's more than that. Joy, joy isn't just a byproduct. Not in the Christian life. In the Christian life, it is, a, it is a byproduct of something larger, but it's also a promise that you have. God is promising to plant your tears and harvest joy. Yes, there will be tears. God does not promise a life otherwise. But he does promise to make it right. God says, every one of your tears I will account for. Every one of them will reap joy. Which means, if you think about it, that the best weepers now are the best laughers then, right? What did Jesus say? Blessed are you who mourn because you will receive comfort. And some of you, I, I know, you've planted with a lot of tears. And the older you get, the more you plant. And you've watered them. And I, I'm, I know I'm, you might not be able to see it right now. And I know the impatience that comes with waiting. And the psalmist does too. He's tired of waiting. That's why he's asking. And I wish I could tell you when. When does this harvest of joy come? I don't know. But the seeds will grow. And just imagine the harvest for you. The fruits of joy and delight and satisfaction and contentment that are yours forever. And there is no one and nothing that can take it from you. So I just, I want to ask one more question. Can you wait for joy? Can you wait for joy? I know some of you are thinking maybe as I asked that, well, I, at least I thought it when I wrote it, which and it was this. Are you saying I can't have joy until I'm dead? Is that the whole point? No, that's not what I'm saying. But there is a sense in which none of us will experience the fullness of joy until we are made whole and God's creation is restored and Jesus reigns fully. Our joy will be lacking until that day, even in the best life. But even while we wait, right, part of the joy now is anticipating the joy then. That's what Christmas is, right? Anticipation. Like a Christmas that you, you, can't, you can't even imagine or a harvest. All this farming won't be for nothing. What God has done in the past, he will do again. And he will do it for you. This, this is why joy can look Past circumstance, it has to. Joy knows who God is and who I am as a result and where this whole thing is heading. It knows the end. You're not going to find joy under the tree or the next party you go to this week or even if you just happen to have the perfect Christmas where none of your family fights and everything's great. Even if that happens, you won't find your joy there. We all ultimately find our joy in this life in an ache for the next one. in the ache for home. But this also means that every moment of joy now is an occasion to celebrate the greatest joy yet to come. Every pleasure, every happy moment, it is a taste only of what comes next. So you think of those moments in your life, the wedding day, the graduation, the birth of a child, the beauty of a sunset, the awe of stars when you camp in the mountains and there's no light 
getting in the way of what you're seeing. These moments, when you touch a joy, it's like a current running underneath the reality of everything. It's like you're tapping into the joy of God himself. But even that is just an appetizer of what is yet to come. This part's just my opinion, okay? The, the, the Bible, um, overall, when it attempts to describe the joy to come, whenever I read it, it's like it, it's like it goes to a whisper. Maybe that's just me. Even in the book of Revelation, which is all about the end, it's about the life to come, this joy-filled life. It talks about golden streets and jewels and beauty beyond imagination. But even when I read it, it's as if John himself who wrote the book, knew that even those images fall infinitely short of the reality itself. John Ortberg, he gives another helpful image here in it. He says, you know, you know when you take a kid to the doctor and they have to get a shot and it's just like, it's like the world is over, it's ending, there's, there's no tomorrow, this is it, right? You've ever, or maybe you, you are a kid and you felt that way. And it's, and it's like, if you, when you're the parent, it's, it's, it's confusing, right? They have no idea, they have no idea that com- compared to the joy and the health and the happiness after this moment, a lifetime of it, this is nothing. This is momentary. And you know that, but your child doesn't. And no matter how many times you try to tell them, they don't believe you. And so what do you do? You furrow your brow and you nod along and you pat their hand. And maybe you even shed a tear with them but you, because you know that even if you tried to tell them the joy of life after this moment, they wouldn't get it. And Orberg wonders, and I, and I do too, what if God is like that? What if despite every awful thing in this world, every loss, every pain, every heartache, and all of that is real, But what if there is a joy coming that is so wonderful you wouldn't believe it, even if God tried to tell you? Right, there's something, here's the other part of it, there's someone who did know. There's one person who did know the joy to come, just one. And he's the only one who left it behind to come down to this world and to sow his tears, but not just his tears, his blood, and his body in the ground. But he didn't stay dead, and he, he burst forth from the ground with shouts of joy so that this promise of the psalm could be kept to all who trust in him. And I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but when the disciples see him for the first time, they see the risen Christ, his body, right, itself a foretaste of the joy and glory of the resurrection life to come. It's, they are like men who dreamed, Luke 24, 41. The disciples could not believe it for joy. They were dumbfounded by the joy of God. And at the end of the story, when Jesus himself reaches down, he'll wipe away every tear, and when all that you've ever lost is found, and everything that's wrong is made right, it's made whole, even if I had the words today to describe to you the joy to come, you wouldn't believe me. So instead, we sing a song and we light a candle and for now, we truly weep and mourn. We do. 
but we know our joy grows best in a field of tears. And we await a harvest of joy that we cannot now imagine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your joy. Your joy was at the beginning before any of us and your joy will be at the end. And you invite us into it. So Father, make us a people of joy. Father, I pray for those here who are struggling that you give them the gift of joy. And God, Father, when people see us, may they see a joyous people with good news to share about a son who, who sowed his tears on earth that we might reap his joy in eternity. We pray this all in his name. Amen.